It's Midday Magazine for Wednesday, August 9th. I'm Hannah Floor with KFSK News. Trident Seafoods dropped the price for Alaska chum salmon this weekend from 60 cents to 20 cents per pound for all fisheries. They also announced a plan to drop pink salmon prices. Trident says Russian pink salmon harvests are affecting demand for all kinds of salmon. KFSK reports. Trident Seafoods is the largest U.S.-owned fish processor in Alaska, with dozens of processing plants and vessels. They announced the price drop in a letter to fishermen on Saturday, saying that chum salmon markets have collapsed. They did not elaborate and did not return requests for comment. But the Alaska Seafood Marketing Institute says it's true. Salmon markets are flooded. Jeremy Woodrow is the executive director. The entire global salmon market is challenged right now, Um, and so... I would say it's not just chum salmon, but it's chum salmon, pink salmon, and really all salmon species. He says Alaskan chum salmon also have specific competition from Japan. Japan's Hokkaido chum fishery has returned after several years of being down, and so that's added actually more chum salmon to the market as well. Earlier this summer in Bristol Bay, Trident Seafoods was the first processor to drop sockeye prices, causing fishermen to protest. The other two processors in the area followed with price drops a few days later. In Petersburg, the two main processors are Trident Seafoods and OBI Seafoods. A representative for OBI declined to comment on the possibility that they would also drop chum prices. In its letter, Trident said that they plan to drop pink salmon prices once there is a large amount of pinks with pale meat color, or what's called PMC. Salmon meat is paler at the end of a salmon's life when nutrients go to producing eggs and sperm sacs. It's less marketable and lower quality but salmon with paler meat have mature salmon eggs, and usually the eggs make up for the pale meat's lower market price. But according to Woodrow, Russia is having one of its largest pink salmon years on record, and that makes it hard to compete. Uh, Russia's selling their salmon at a much lower price in the global markets. Um, In the last report I saw, um, they're likely going to catch double what Alaska's pink salmon harvest will be. Woodrow says that inflation has also had an impact on the global seafood market. Um, when consumers have less spending power, they tend to leave seafood out of the shopping carts. But that's changing. He says as inflation levels off, consumers are starting to behave differently. Consumers are starting to add seafood back to their shopping baskets. Uh, they are starting to dine out a little bit more frequently and purchasing seafood while at restaurants. Woodrow says that large global salmon harvests will probably continue at least into the fall. But overall, it looks like demand for seafood is increasing, and that could affect salmon prices in the months to come. In Petersburg, I'm Hannah Floor. After this weekend's record flooding of the Mendenhall River, Juneau City leaders issued a local emergency declaration Monday night. As Katie Anastas reports, they're encouraging residents to document any cleanup and repair work. On Monday night, the Mendenhall River was still a foot or two higher than usual. Normal at uh, this time of year is five to six feet. It's at about seven feet. So it's it's not uh, at its normal level, but it's on its way there. Katie Kester is Juno's engineering and public works director. At an assembly meeting that night, she said that while the water level is almost back to normal, the path of the river has changed. It is a new river. So it has a new route. It has uh, new uh, debris new uh, obstacles. Kester said most of the damage was to private property. We have two homes that went into the river um, 
one home that partially went into the river. Um, don't know yet how much of a loss that home is. There are another five structures that CDD has condemned. Um, this, uh, this represents eight condemned structures and about two dozen households. Some city property is also in need of repair. Three of the city's lift stations were totally submerged, which stopped sewer service to nearby homes. All three are back up and running, though one still needs additional repairs. Vacuum trucks have been removing silt from storm drains. The Juno Assembly also approved a local emergency declaration Monday night. The declaration requests funding from the state and, if needed, the federal government. Deputy City Manager Robert Barr says it also allows the city to pay for services related to the cleanup without following the city's purchasing code, which prioritizes getting the best price possible. A local emergency declaration allows us to um, procure goods and services faster. Barr said the state or federal government can either give public or individual assistance. Public assistance would reimburse the city to repair things like roads and the sewer system. Individual assistance goes directly to homeowners. We would certainly recommend that homeowners that are engaged in expenditures and salvage operations, repairs, that, that sort of thing, that they keep their receipts um, and, and pictures um, of, of that work um, on the chance that, that we are able to um, uh, get some sort of individual assistance for, at the state or federal level. The city is letting property owners shore up their land without getting a permit first if there's an immediate safety threat. But they ask that homeowners notify the Community Development Department as soon as possible. Property owners whose homes were damaged or lost may be eligible for a property reassessment, which could result in a lower tax bill for the year. Residents have been picking up building material, furniture, and other debris throughout Juneau. Kester says the city is working with waste management to try to extend drop-off hours at the landfill. Residents should continue calling the Alaska Department of Environmental Conservation if they see oil sheens or loose fuel tanks. In Juneau, I'm Katie Anastas. Governor Mike Dunleavy also verbally issued a state disaster declaration yesterday. Alaska's congressional delegation has reintroduced legislation that would make the five so-called landless communities of Southeast landless no more. The communities have long argued that being left out of the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act is an injustice, but inclusion has remained elusive. Sage Smiley has more from Wrangell. It's been more than half a century since Congress passed the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act, or ANCSA. It put millions of acres of land in the control of more than 200 newly formed local and regional Alaska Native corporations. But five Southeast Alaska Native communities were left out. We were literally involved from the very, very beginning going back to the, the very first part of land claims. Tashi Richard Reinhardt is Kiksetti from Wrangell, which is one of the five communities excluded from ANCSA. To be left out was a surprise to us. Alaska's congressional delegation has been trying to change that by submitting and resubmitting bills over the past two decades. The bills are aimed at amending the 1971 legislation to include Wrangell, Petersburg, Ketchikan, Haines, and Tenakee Springs. Sam Erickson is press secretary for Representative Mary Peltola, Alaska's sole representative in Congress. We see this as 
correcting an oversight from Congress that resulted in unfulfilled promises for the landless communities of Southeast. Peltola filed a bill in the U.S. House of Representatives in late July. It's functionally the same as many others proposed in the past by Alaska legislators. Because they were left out, you know, these communities, these land communities never got the opportunities for economic development and cultural preservation that the other communities did. It's a matter of longstanding discussion why the five communities were excluded from the initial 1971 law. A report by the University of Alaska in the mid-1990s found no clear reason why the communities were excluded other than congressional intent. At a congressional hearing in 2015, the late Representative Don Young speculated it was because of the thriving logging in and around the five communities at the time of the law's passage in the early 1970s. Young said timber groups lobbied hard against the community's inclusion, fearing it would impact future logging claims. It is so impactful for the five communities that were left out. Atseen Esther Reese is the tribal administrator for the Wrangell Cooperative Association, Wrangell's federally recognized tribal government. This was our land since time immemorial, and it is recognizing that and giving our tribal citizens some of our land back that we had stewarded for tens of thousands of years. So on a philosophical level, um, I think that's very important. Not only does Wrangell's exclusion from ANCSA keep it from receiving a township of land, it also means community members have been barred from forming a local corporation. Alaska Native corporations are a huge chunk of the state's economy and the largest type of private employer in the state. What could it do? I think sky's the limit. Reinhardt explains it's unlikely a Wrangell Native corporation would go down the logging route of many original ANCSA corporations. He says village corporations are now looking at carbon credits, contracting jobs, and other economic endeavors. Each, every community will benefit. And when I say that, I don't mean just the Native community. Of course, the Native community would benefit, but the entire community of Wrangell would benefit and Ketchikan and Petersburg and Haines and Tennessee, they would all benefit, the non-natives as well as the native shareholders. The years-long effort to include the five communities under ANCSA has faced pushback. Last year, Petersburg's borough government narrowly approved a letter to Congress opposing a previous version of the bill after years of divided town discussions. Some have concerns about specific sites included in proposed maps of the areas that would be transferred to landless communities. Landless legislation has also in the past faced opposition from some environmental groups because of potential development at the sites. Still others are concerned about the potential for restricted public access. It's hard because every acre in the Tungus is already committed or loved in some way. Senator Lisa Murkowski acknowledged the difficulty of establishing land plots and negotiating potential use and access conflicts during an interview with KSDK last fall. But she said she still believes Congress should honor the obligation of ANCSA. She reintroduced a bill in the Senate in June that would include the five landless communities. What we're trying to do, again, is to to resolve a longstanding uh, inequity and do so in a manner that um, is is most... um, that, that brings about that brings about consensus rather than conflict. Reese, Wrangell's tribal administrator, says the years-long campaign to include Wrangell and the other landless communities speaks to how important it is. I think it is indicative of how passionate our people are to be able to receive that recognition and to be able to receive that land and to be able to receive those rights. It's not easy to keep going. Alaska's delegation has introduced a handful of other bills aimed at amending ANCSA this term as well. In all, the law has been amended over a hundred times. In Wrangell, I'm Sage Smiley. 
The Alaska Travel Industry Association has created a new seat on its board set aside for tribal representation. The head of the association, Jilliam Simpson, says it's not only the right thing to do, but good for business. I think people want to have an authentic experience when they travel someplace, and Alaska is the only place in the world that has the living cultures of Alaska Native people. Camilla Ferguson, a Fringet from Sitka, currently holds one of the ATIA's 24 board seats, but not as a tribal representative. She says it's important that tourism marketing is culturally authentic, and a tribal representative would have the most expertise in that area. Authenticity from imagery, content, and video. It's so important to have somebody who is at that table to help them. Ferguson worked for the American Indian Alaska Native Tourism Association based in New Mexico, where she saw how tribal representation helped the travel industry develop culturally sensitive practices. She says not all states collaborate with tribes, but should, not just for diversity's sake, but to improve the overall tourism experience. She says that until recently, the cruise industry defined the portrayal of Southeast Alaska, limiting its focus to Alaska natives in Ketchikan, Russian history in Sitka, and glaciers in Juneau. The diversity of Alaska is so unique, they were missing the boat. Juneau's got more than those glaciers. Let's talk about the Ock people. Let's learn about those Ock people. Ferguson says Alaska's travel industry is finally coming around to recognizing the untapped potential of cultural tourism. And with more tribes developing their own tourism businesses, there's a lot of opportunity to collaborate. The Alaska Native Heritage Center in Anchorage, a longtime gateway to the state's native cultures, says studies show that when people come to the state to experience cultural tourism, they stay longer and spend more money. An Alaska woman is suing the federal government over sexual abuse she says she suffered at the hands of the warden and staff at a California prison that came to be known as a rape club. According to the lawsuit filed in federal court for the District of Alaska on Monday, the woman was an inmate at a low-security prison in Dublin, California, when the warden, Ray Garcia, started grooming her in 2019. The lawsuit says that evolved into sexual contact and harassment over the next two years or so. They continued when the woman returned to Alaska to finish her sentence in a halfway house while still under Garcia's supervision. Under federal law, there is no circumstance under which an incarcerated person can legally consent to sex with a prison official. According to the lawsuit, the woman was discouraged from reporting Garcia because he ran the prison's rape reporting program. But the woman named only by her initials in the lawsuit, testified at Garcia's criminal trial in 2022, as did other victims. That led to a jury to convict Garcia and a judge to sentence him to nearly six years behind bars. The woman's lawsuit seeks an unspecified sum of money to be determined in court. The Bureau of Prisons did not immediately respond to a request for comment on Wednesday. That is it for Midday Magazine. I'm Hannah Floor. Coming up next, we have birthdays and community calendar, as well as local and marine weather.